Hello everyone, great to see you all. I'll lead us in prayer as we begin, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray now that you'll give us minds to understand your word, but more than that we pray that you'll give us hearts to accept it as your word uh, and hearts that are willing to be changed by it. And we pray that in the light of tonight's passage, if there are things we need to deal with in our life, that you'll help us to do that, Uh, but we pray that it will always drive us back to Jesus and the forgiveness and grace we have in him and we pray this in his name. Amen. I think uh, many people in our world today have absolutely no concept of what it means to become a Christian. Uh, So I think lots of people in our world think that uh, you as a Christian, uh, that it's just like you've joined a club or something, you know, like a soccer club or uh, some public speaking society or something and they think it's something you could just leave behind, you know, that that is... you might grow out of, that might be a phase you're going through or something like that. Uh, But what they don't understand is that becoming a Christian is the most important, the most fundamental thing in your life. Uh, There is no bigger decision a person makes than whether to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. And more than that, it's not a minor thing because when a person comes to know Jesus, it changes them. It must change them. Uh, The idea that someone could become a Christian and then say, now I will just keep living how I used to live before I became a Christian, that idea is just totally foreign to the Bible. It's just like a logical impossibility. The Bible would say, if you think that, you haven't understood Jesus, you haven't become a Christian. Because by definition, becoming a Christian means your life will change in radical ways. In many ways, that's what I love about this book of 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul is writing to this little persecuted church And he's saying, it is just so obvious to everyone that you have come to know Jesus. He's saying, it's so obvious to see, everyone can tell that you know Jesus died for your sins because everyone talks about how you've turned away from idols and now you are living to serve the true and living God. He says, it's obvious that you know that Jesus is risen from the dead and one day will come back because of the way you live your life. It's just so obvious you're not living for this world anymore. The important the things of this world, you don't find them important anymore. You're living for heaven. You're living for eternity. And the way you put up with suffering and yet you're still joyful. He says people just know that you're someone who trusts in Jesus. That was the Thessalonian church. But it's really, really important to get the order of that right. I'll explain what I mean. They or we are not saved because of what we do to serve the true and living God. It's because they were saved that they turned to serve the true and living God. They don't escape the coming wrath of Jesus like we don't because of how we live. They live that way because they know that Jesus has already saved them from the coming wrath. It's so important to get that order right. Uh, We are not saved by how we live. How are we saved? By grace alone, the free gift of God. And how do we take a hold of that grace? Through faith alone. I'm getting about a 50% buy-in rate tonight. So, And it's faith in who alone? Christ alone. That was about 75%. There we go. You see, you are not saved by how you live. You're saved by faith, through faith in Christ. But the faith that saves always leads to a changed life. 
And that's especially important as we come to this passage tonight, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because chapter 4 is about how we live as people who want to please God. But I don't want you to go away from tonight thinking, oh, so I have to do all these things in order to be saved. It's no, no, no. You want to do these things because you know God has saved you. And you've got to get that order right or you can never understand what God is saying to us. We don't do this to earn God's love, but because he loves us. So come with me then, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 1. It says, finally then, brothers. So that is, after all I've said already over the last three weeks, in chapters 1 to 3 about faith and hope and love, now, finally, what does he say? He says, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received from us how you must walk and please God, as you are doing, do so even more. This is so important, he's saying to us, Now, if you are a Christian, you must walk, that's a way of saying how you live your life, how how you live day to day. He's saying, if you're a Christian, you must live your life, and sure you want to, you must live your life in a way that seeks to please God. That's what you're called to do. So the fundamental question any Christian asks, every time you wake up in the morning, you should ask the question, how can I please God today? How can I live to please God in this situation that I'm in? Because why? Back to chapter 1, we have turned to serve the true and living God. And how do you know how to please God? Well, look again at verse 1. The Thessalonians, Paul says, received that information from him. That is, the apostle didn't just teach them how to become a Christian. He didn't just tell them, Jesus died for your sins and rose again, trust in him. He then taught them how you live for Jesus as someone who has been saved. So for us, how do we know how to please God? It's very, very simple. We follow the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament. Now, he then expands on that in verse 2. So look at verse 2. He says, For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Some translations have that as, you know what instructions we gave you. But I think our modern ears hear that word, instructions, like suggestions. So I get instructions for how to use the stereo and I throw them in the bin and say, I'll work it out for myself. No, it's more than that. The word here is actually a military word. It means, you know what marching orders we gave you. See, just like soldiers are not free to decide what commands they obey from their general... We aren't free to decide what commands of Jesus and the apostles we follow. We aren't free to pick and choose what's good for us. The ethical teaching of the New Testament is not wisdom. It's not interesting information for me to weigh up and decide, I'll follow that, but I don't like that bit. See, if the instructions, the commands of Jesus for how we can live to please God, if that's what it is, then we follow it. Non-negotiable. So if that's what we desire to do, if we desire to please God, we need to walk according to the teaching of the New Testament, which leads into verse 3. Look with me. It says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. Sanctification is one of those big Bible words we need to understand, and it's really pretty simple. Sanctification is that work that God does in every Christian to make us more like Jesus, to make us more holy. See, again, it's important to get the order right. When you become a Christian, you are justified by faith. That is, God declares you innocent. 
He says, this one is my child. They are innocent. They are forgiven. But not because we deserve it. We're still sinners. It's still, in one sense, the same old us. But God looks at us and says, I don't see their sin anymore. Jesus has paid the price for it. So in many ways, that is our salvation. That's our forgiveness. That's our our hope of heaven is secured. But we're still sinners. And so over time, God works in us through his spirit to sanctify us. So what does God do? He helps us put off sin and put on godliness. He he helps us put off selfishness and, and put on generosity. He helps us put off worldly lusts and put on self-control. He helps us put off living to please ourselves and put on living to please him. Sometimes I have conversations with people here at church where they ask that sort of existential question. They say, what is God's will for my life? But what they usually mean is, should I go to uni or get a job? Important question. Or should I work as a teacher or train to be an overseas missionary? Or should I get married or should I remain single? And they are all important questions, but never forget, they are secondary matters. God's greater will for you, the thing he really cares about more than anything else, is that you would be sanctified. That you would become more holy. That you would become more like Jesus. And God does that work in you by his spirit, but he also calls on us to do that work in ourselves. We cooperate with him to seek to be more holy, to be sanctified. So now back to the passage. At the end of verse 3, he starts to deal with, deal with specific areas of sanctification. And there are three areas in this passage that he deals with. Sexual immorality, love for our brothers and sisters, and work. So let's look at each in turn. Sexual immorality first. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honour, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. This week I was reading a commentary and it was written in the 1940s uh, on 1 Thessalonians and this is what the writer said. He said, it comes as a surprise to the modern reader, by that he meant someone in the 1940s, that the first issue Paul chooses to deal with is sexual immorality because this is not an issue of our time. I don't think he understood people's hearts very well, but anyway. But then he says, but you have to understand, unlike our time, the 1940s, the world of the first century that the New Testament was written to, in that world, adultery and homosexual practice were encouraged and generally accepted. And fornication, that is sex before marriage, was considered normal and to oppose it was seen as strange. It's amazing what 60 years has done, isn't it? See, since he wrote that, his description of pagan Greek culture of the first century could just be describing Sydney in 2018. In fact, it is describing Sydney in 2018, where our modern world says, if it feels good, do it. Follow your lusts. And how can you tell people that they're not able to fulfil their desires and their passions? So for us, I don't think we are surprised that sexual immorality is the first topic that it deals with because we live in a promiscuous sex-mad world just like the time of the Bible. I think that shocks people sometimes. I think they think, ah, you see, the Bible's ethics have to change because the world is different now. It's exactly the same. Now understand, the word sexual immorality covers all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage. 
So it includes adultery, it includes all homosexual practice, it includes fornication, that is, sex before marriage. Today, it would also include viewing pornography, uh, because the word is actually porneia, from where we get pornography. In 1 Corinthians, we're told that our bodies are not our own. So if you ever think, it's my body, I'll do with it what I want, it's not your body, it's God's body. And so Paul tells us we must not debase it with sexual immorality. Interestingly, the Bible is actually very positive about sex. It says sex is a wonderful gift from God for joining people together in lifelong marriage. That is what it's for. The point of sex is so that it it works to help bind two people who've made a lifelong commitment to one another together forever. That's why the Bible's teaching on sex is if you are married, do it a lot because that's its purpose. But then the Bible says, if you use it for something it's not designed for, that is not part of God's good design, it actually damages us horribly. You see, it damages our souls and it dishonours God. See, our world, like theirs, says, follow your desires. And interestingly, in the last 10 years or so, the world has gone on the attack and even says the Christian worldview is harmful. It's harmful not to express your desires and passions. There's been a bit of a kerfuffle in the newspapers this week about Anglican schools here in Sydney. Have you seen that on the ABC or the Sydney Morning Herald? And one person wrote into the Sydney Morning Herald and they said, the teaching about sex, and by that they meant biblical teaching, that I received at my expensive Anglican private school was damaging to me because it told me that I was not able to fulfil my desires and live out my passions. So that's the way our world views it. But God's view is very different. God says, no, 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 I haven't made you to be an animal that just can't control itself. God says, you are human beings. You are made in my image and I value self-control. So look at verse 4. He says, so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honour, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. See, our world says, just follow your passions. That's not what it is to be a human being. A human being is made in the image of God, and so we exercise self-control. But more than that, Paul says, sexual immorality harms other people as well. Just look at verse 6. He says, this means one must not transgress against and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offences as we also previously told and warned you. See, the modern world likes to say, what's it to you what two consenting adults do? As if sexual immorality has no other consequences. But when people commit adultery, they are horribly hurting other people. Not just the person they're committing adultery with, but the family of that other person. Most horribly, the children of that other person. They are damaging other people. And when people sleep together without getting married... They are taking something away from that person that they have not made enough of a commitment to own. And they are taking something away from potentially that other person's future marriage partner. They are stealing when they do that. And God says, I am an avenger of all these offences. And people today like to say, oh, but pornography, no one gets hurt by that. It's just sort of one person. Look at the computer. Do you know the awful damage that pornography does 
to the damaged, horribly damaged people who produce it. It is not a victimless crime. It's horribly damaging. And God says this is not just a minor matter. To reject God's teaching on sexual ethics is to reject God. Look at how strong he puts it in verse 8. He says, therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also gives you his Holy Spirit. I opened my newspaper this morning, over my morning coffee, before I went up to the early morning service to preach, and there in the newspaper was this article championing this uniting church that was holding a same-sex marriage service and saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if all churches were as open to this and so forth? Sadly, this tells us that churches that do that have rejected God. They are no longer able to be called churches. They are not Christian. If you reject the ethical teaching of the New Testament, you have rejected God and His Holy Spirit. So if someone teaches you anything other than that sexual intimacy is only for a man and a woman committed together for life in a marriage union... They are a false teacher. They are pointing you away from God. But more important than worrying about that, worry about ourselves. If we reject God's teaching on this and involve ourselves in sexual immorality, we need to know how seriously God takes it. Look at verse 8 again. The person who rejects this does not reject man, but God. I just want to pause at this point and speak to three different types of people. And you might actually be in all three categories or you might be in none, but listen to them anyway. Firstly, I want to talk to you if you have fallen sexually at some point. And in our modern world, especially if people grow up not knowing Jesus and then become a Christian, chances are you will have fallen sexually. That is just the reality of our world, just like it was the reality of the world of the first century. And I want to say to you, remember that God forgives those who repent and trust in Jesus. Like any sin, greed or hate or selfishness or any sin, sexual sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So if you are someone who has fallen sexually, there are consequences that you'll need to deal with in your life, but God is good and God's grace is sufficient for all sin, including sexual sin. But secondly, I want to speak to you if you are currently caught in sexual sin. I want to say to you, it is not a minor thing. Repent and flee from it now. If you are finding yourself watching pornography on your computer, if you are unmarried but involved sexually with your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you are married but flirting with adultery, I want to say to you, deal with it now. Confess it to God. Speak to a Christian person, a mature Christian person who you trust. Ask for their help and then repent. Cut off the relationship. Jesus says, gouge out your eye if you have to. Cut off your hand if you have to. It is better to get into heaven with one hand than to walk away from Jesus in this way. See, if you are a Christian and you want to please God, sexual sin grieves God. So if you are caught in it, please repent, confess your sin to God and take drastic steps to deal with it. Thirdly, to all of us, sexual sin is for many people the most powerful temptation we face. Not for all people, but for many people. Actually, there's a bigger temptation we all face, and that's called greed, but that's for another sermon. 
But sexual sin is for many the most powerful temptation we face. So do not flirt with it, if you'll excuse my pun. Flee from it. It's not many of us here, but if you are married, cultivate your marriage. Cultivate your marriage. Whether you're married or not, remove the temptations. If you are in a going out relationship, set appropriate boundaries so that you do not lead the other person into sin as well as yourself. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say, sail as close to the wind as you can. He doesn't say, be a Pharisee and argue about whether that's sexual immorality or not. If you wouldn't do it with your brother or sister and you're not married, it's sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Sexual sin is incredibly serious. In my experience, it is the sin that drags people away from Jesus more than any other. Because what happens is, people fall in sexual sin and they then find they just can't confess it. And so they justify, they say, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore because they're guilty about it. Do not do that. Even if you've fallen in this area, remember Jesus forgives you, but you need to repent and trust in him. But of course, God is not a one-issue God, as much as our world likes to tell us he is. I think God deals with sex first, not because he's obsessed with sex, but because we're obsessed with sex. But if we move on, the next part of our sanctification Paul addresses is brotherly and sisterly love. Look at verse 9. He says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I love the way Paul deals with the thing our world calls love, but is actually lust. And then he goes on to talk about real love, which is a self-sacrificial concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, Paul says, if you know Jesus, if God is your father, then your church are your brothers and sisters. I think this is one of the most radical things the New Testament teaches. It's a look around these people here because they're your church. Look around at them. At least look at the person next to you. Don't be bashful. We're not talking about sexual immorality anymore. <laughs> it's, look at these people. These are your brothers and sisters. Spiritually, they are like blood to you. The Bible actually says that this is the more important family. That's the reality for the Christian. And our call is to love one another. It's interesting, we're called to love all people. This is really important. This down here, the Anglicare toys and tucker, but that's for people out there. But the, the gospel says, Jesus says, there is a priority to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. The other people who are a part of your, your church. And in fact, the New Testament tells us that the thing that will impact our world more than any other and that will make people want to know Jesus is they will look at us and they'll look at the way we treat one another and they'll say, I want love like that because I can't get it out here in the world. And that was what was happening in Thessalonica, their love for one another and even Christians outside their town, right across their region, people just talked about it. It was obvious. They said, can you see what's happening? These guys just love one another. Just like Jesus loves them, they love one another. Sadly, I think... Over time, as church became institutionalised and something you go to, you know, people say, I go to church at 6.30 on a Sunday night. 
Too many Christians have moved to keeping their brothers and sisters in Christ at arm's length. They come to church, but they keep the barriers up, the walls up, in terms of the relationships with these people who are their spiritual family. See, that's why I love it when I see people here sharing their burdens with one another. That's why I love it when I see people praying for one another, especially when I see people including one another in their homes. I love it when I see the way many in our church commit themselves to fellowship, both on a Sunday night here, but also in gospel teams during the week, prioritising their church as their family, like we should. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, you're already doing this. And I say to you, you're already doing this. I don't need to tell you to love one another, but then look at the second half of verse 10. He says, but we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. He's saying love isn't something where you tick a box and say, I've done that, I'll move on to the next thing now. No, it's ongoing, it never ends, and we can always love one another more and more and more. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So avoid sexual immorality. Love one another more and more. They're big things, aren't they? They're big topics. But the thing with living to please God is that the difference will show itself in everyday life more than anywhere else. And that's where Paul goes thirdly, the final area of sanctification, what I've called work and life. So look again from verse 10. He says, but we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Being a Christian should make a massive difference in just everyday life for you. And for most people, the biggest part of everyday life is work, as much as we wish it was something else. Christians should just be good citizens. Christians should just be good workers. The gospel should impact that. When he says, seek to lead a quiet life, I think he's meaning don't be a troublemaker. Don't be the person who's always complaining. Don't be the one who everyone hears grumbling. Don't be the person who's always the centre of attention. When he says, mind your own business, I think he's saying, don't be the busybody. Don't be the gossip. Don't be the one who sticks their nose in everyone else's business. And work with your own hands. I don't think Paul is saying that tradesmen are more godly than office workers. Uh, If working with your own hands was a prerequisite for godliness, I am in all sorts of trouble because I'm the most hopeless person in the world at that He's saying, don't be idle, be a producer, be someone who works hard. He's not denigrating the person who can't find work or who is unable to work, but he is denigrating the person who refuses to work. You see, he's saying godliness will just show in your attitude to your work. Are you someone who contributes or are you someone who gets carried by others? And why do we do those things? Look at verse 12 so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So we do it so that when non-believers look at us, they say, he's not trying to get a free ride. She's a hard worker. She's someone who helps others rather than always expects others to help her. See, our manner of life will either adorn the gospel or it will tarnish the gospel. See, we want people to know we're Christians, don't we? We want people, I hope you do it, your uni or your work or your school or wherever you are, I hope you want people to know you're Christians. But there is nothing worse than when they know you're a Christian and look at your life 
and say, look at that lazy, big-mouthed busybody. They won't want to know our Lord then, will they? But if they look at us and say, look at the way she lives, and they look at us and say, look at how he works, look at how he speaks, then they might just say, tell me more about why you are the way you are. Tell me more about this Lord who you worship, the Lord Jesus. Because in the end, that's what we want more than anything else, isn't it? We want people to come and find salvation with us in Jesus. And so we should pray that God might help us to live to please him so that then people might look at our life, see the difference and want to know the Lord we worship. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news that despite all our sin, and many of us here have sinned in awful ways, but Father, we thank you for the wonderful news that despite all our sin, Jesus washes it clean. And if we just trust in him, we know the certainty of your forgiveness and that we have a certain place in your kingdom. But now, Father, as people who have been forgiven, as people who know Jesus, we pray that we would want to live our lives to please you. And so, Father, we pray that you would work with us in that work of sanctification, that you would help us to put off ungodliness and put on godliness. In particular, help us to flee from sexual immorality. Help us to abound in love for one another more and more. And help us in just the small things of life, in our work and manner of life, to be different to others so that they might want to know the Lord who we worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.